Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 9 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a newly joined defendant is protected by the statute of limitations. Here's what happened in the case of Balanos versus the WCAB. Romero Zapata Jimenez was injured at work in May 2003. He sustained injury to his head, brain, right knee, internal system, and urinary tract and is totally and permanently disabled. His timely workers' compensation claim named Luis Aragon an uninsured contractor as his employer. Aragon was refurbishing a Long Beach apartment complex and the owner was Marco Bolanos. Aragon was a licensed contractor, but his workers' comp insurance had expired in April 2002, and Aragon filed for bankruptcy in 2011. Bolanos did not recall whether he asked Aragon if he had workers' compensation insurance when Bolanos hired Aragon to refurbish the apartment complex. In August 2003, Zapata's attorney sent a letter to Mr. Bolanos notifying him of Zapata's injury. This letter was the property owner's first notice of Zapata's accident and injury. Bolanos, the property owner, did not reply to the letter and did not at any time after the accident provide a claim form to Mr. Zapata. Zapata then joined the Unemployer's Benefits Trust Fund as a defendant in, the, in February 2004. The work comp judge on the UEBTF's motion joined Bolanos as a party defendant in June 2009. This was six years after the accident occurred. The property owner, Mr. Bolanos, raised the statute of limitations and latches as a defense. The injured worker also sued the property owner in a civil action in 2011, represented by the same attorney who represented him in the workers' compensation proceeding. The Superior Court sustained the property owner's demurrer without leave to amend in 2012 based upon the civil statute of limitations. But the work comp judge issued finding and an award in July 2015 and found that Mr. Bolanos to be the ultimate employer of Mr. Zapata because the employer, the contractor was both uninsured and unlicensed by operation of law. The work comp judge rejected the statute of limitations as a defense to the property owner. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board in a split decision held that the statute of limitations was told and did not apply as a defense for the property owner. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished opinion of Bolanos versus the WCAB. Labor Code Section 5405 provides that a workers' compensation claim must be filed one year after the date of injury. The court said that a new defendant cannot be added after the statute of limitations has run, citing the 2003 case of McGee Street Productions versus WCAB. The general rule is well settled that when new parties are brought in by amendment, the statute of limitations continues to run in their favor until thus made parties. The suit cannot be considered as having been commenced against them until they are made parties. The statute of limitations is told 
if the employee is unaware of his right to file a work comp claim. But here, Mr. Zapata was not ignorant of his right to apply for benefits under the workers' compensation laws for this injury, as demonstrated by his filing a work comp claim back in August 2003. After that date, there was no need for a claim form and notice of potential eligibility for benefits. Nor was there any reason for tolling the statute of limitations after that date. A WCAB panel ruled that a claimant is entitled to TD and PD caused by a URIMR denied treatment. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Go versus Sutter Solano Medical Center. In 2013, Belinda Go injured her neck while working for Sutter Solano Medical Center as a registered nurse. In 2015, one of her treating physicians requested authorization for a cervical spine surgery, and UR denied that authorization. And the UR denial was upheld in a July 2015 IMR determination. In September 2015, her condition was found to be permanent and stationary by her PTP. Her neck disability then caused 5% whole person impairment, which rated 7% permanent disability after apportionment of 20% to non-industrial factors. Belinda Go returned to work for a period of time until March 2016 when she had increased symptoms. Later that month, she self-procured the cervical spine surgery despite the UR-IMR decisions and again became permanent stationary four months after the cervical surgery. As a result of the unauthorized surgery, applicant's neck disability was increased to 17% whole person impairment. The employer argued that because authorization for the cervical spine surgery was denied, it has no liability for permanent or temporary disability that the surgery caused. But the work comp judge found that Go was entitled to TTD following the cervical spine surgery and awarded the higher 23% permanent disability after apportionment. The defendant's petition for reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Go versus Sutter Solano Medical Center. After reviewing several conflicting panel decisions on this issue, the new panel concluded that an employee is entitled to permanent disability caused by reasonable medical treatment of the industrial injury, and that the UR and IMR statutes are silent on the question of temporary disability indemnity, an employee is not precluded from claiming it even if the disability results from reasonable medical treatment that is self-procured. The risk of double damages claimed against California workers' compensation carriers may be increasing for failure to reimburse Medicare Advantage plans for medical care when a claim is settled. Hartford Casualty Insurance Company is the target of a new complaint recently filed in the United States District Court in Seattle, Washington by Humana Health Plan. Humana, as a Medicare Advantage Plan, or MAP, is seeking a declaratory judgment as to Hartford's obligation to reimburse conditional payments made by them before settlement of its claim. 
as well as a private cause of action for the recovery of double damages for the alleged failure to reimburse Humana as required by federal law. If Humana ultimately prevails and Hartford appeals to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, precedent may be set determining that an MAP has the same recovery rights as traditional Medicare, which is the right to double damages. The Ninth Circuit is the largest circuit in the United States, and it includes California. Thus, thus California carriers may be affected by the outcome of any ruling. These states would be added to the growing list of the Third and Eleventh Circuits from the Inre Avandia and Western Heritage litigation, which has now established this double damages right in the states of Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. The Medicare beneficiary in this test case was injured in a car accident. The enrollee received medical treatment related to the collision which was paid for by Humana, totaling over $161,000 in conditional payments. In February 2015, Humana sent Hartford a written notice of its right to recovery of the conditional payments. Later in 2015, Hartford entered into a settlement with the injured claimant, and the claimant was responsible for reimbursing Humana within 60 days of Hartford's payment of the settlement amount. However, the claimant did not reimburse Humana. Even though Hartford had already paid the claimant the settlement funds, Humana alleges that the Hartford remains responsible to ensure that Humana was reimbursed pursuant to federal law. The same issue of an MAP's ability to bring double damages private cause of action was brought to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in the case of Para versus Pacific Care of Arizona back in 2012. The MAP in Para was unsuccessful in its double damages pursuit and simply awarded a contractual right of recovery. The Para Court determined that double damages was not available because the carrier had already interpleaded the funds to the court and that that point had no control over such funds. However, this new complaint filed by Humana may establish the MSP double damages if the allegations that Hartford ignored Humana's request for reimbursement holds true. Thus far, circuit courts and district courts nationwide tend to be favoring MAPs having the same rights to recovery as Medicare. Further, the circumstances and legalities behind this new complaint are quite simple. Hartford was on notice of Humana's claim for recovery and did not appropriately respond. Despite Hartford's already having paid the enrollee, Humana purports to have a solid legal basis to pursue recovery from Hartford pursuant to the federal statutes. Dr. Eduardo Aguizola, who is facing multiple counts of insurance fraud filed by Orange County prosecutors, is one of the plaintiffs who claims the new automatic lien stay law violates his constitutional rights. His motion in federal court for a preliminary injunction halting the implementation of the new law has been pending since early this year. As the Aguizola case headed for its final hearing on September 28, Governor Brown signed AB 1422 into law. AB 1422 contains a provision that clearly says 
the automatic stay in lien claimant cases shall not preclude the appeals board from inquiring into and determining within a workers' compensation proceeding whether a lien is stayed or whether a lien claimant is controlled by a physician, practitioner, or provider. The DIR filed a notice of this new law in the federal court action the day before the September 28 hearing set before Judge Wu, which would have been the final hearing before his ruling. Accordingly, Judge Wu continued the September 28 hearing to October 19 and provided the parties with a briefing schedule to discuss the impact of the newly passed law. In the final closing brief just filed in support of a preliminary injunction, attorneys for the lien claimants say that they are making a facial constitutional attack on a statute which cannot be cured by a hastily passed amendment. They go on to claim that the state appears to have corralled the legislature into intervening by rushing through an amended legislation. But they go on to argue that the California legislature's recent amendment to Labor Code 4615 does not repair the law's constitutional defects. They say that the amendment merely serves to highlight those defects while doing nothing to ameliorate the due process and Sixth Amendment quagmire created by the law. They support the argument by saying the new law does not provide any staid lien claimant with a right to a hearing. They claim it merely states that the stay shall not preclude the appeals board from inquiring into determining whether a lien is stayed. They argue this language does not require the appeals board to allow lien claimants to be heard on the issue or even to consider any protest raised by a lien claimant. It merely gives the appeals board permission to consider such a grievance. They go on to include that the new law gives lien claimants no right at all to a hearing, even when it is abundantly clear that a lien claimant should not have been on the published list, the secret list, the double secret list, they call it, or any other list that might be available to the appeals board. <clears throat> the DIR filed their response on October 10, and Judge Wu will hold another hearing in federal court on October 19, and a filing ruling will likely follow. <clears throat> and now our crime report. Federal prosecutors announced that the owner-operator of a Burbank medical clinic was sentenced to 37 months in federal prison on federal health care fraud charges. Kanarik van der Meijen of Burbank, who formerly owned and operated the medical clinic, was also ordered to pay over $1.7 million in restitution to CMS. Van der Meijen pleaded guilty last April to two counts of federal health care fraud. She admitted that she billed Medicare for medically unnecessary office visits and diagnostic tests by arranging for the issuance of prescription and orders for medically unnecessary durable medical equipment and health services. Vattermeyen further admitted that many, if not all, of the people who visited her clinic were brought in by marketers who offered free, medically unnecessary equipment or food to patients. Medicare paid over $1.7 million as a result of this fraudulent scheme. This case was investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
And in regulatory news, the DWC announced that it will lift the notation in EAMS that indicates all liens with Labor Code Section 4903.05c declarations filed on July 2nd and July 3rd were dismissed. Under this Labor Code provision, lien claimants were required to file the Supplemental Lien Form and Declaration by July 1, 2017. The declarations confirm that the liens are valid and appropriately filed. A total of 2,794 liens with declarations filed on July 2nd and 3rd were administratively designated as dismissed for failure to comply with the July 1 filing deadline. However, since July 1 fell on a weekend, workers' compensation administrative law judges will adjudicate the timeliness of lien declarations filed on July 2nd and July 3rd on a case-by-case basis. The DWC's reversal of the dismissal notation is not a decision or order on the timeliness of the declarations and shall not be construed as such. Liens with declarations filed after July 3rd and liens where no declaration was filed will remain dismissed by operation of law. The DWC has suspended eight more medical providers from participating in California's work comp system. This brings the total number of providers suspended this year to 46. The following providers have been added to the list. Abraham Korshad of Beverly Hills, an investor in Aspen Medical Resources and co-conspirator with Jeffrey Campau and Landon Melagrego, who were suspended from the workers' compensation last month. Korshad and his co-defendants pled guilty in Orange County Superior Court in May to medical insurance fraud for their involvement in an overbilling scheme in which they defrauded insurance companies of more than $70 million. The three providers agreed to pay more than $8 million in restitution to several insurers and self-insured employers and to voluntarily dismiss liens of nearly $140,000. Joseph Sales of Buena Park, a physical therapist, and Daniel Goyena of Whittier, a physical therapist assistant, pled guilty in federal court in 2015 for paying illegal kickbacks as part of a Medicare fraud scheme. Both providers were co-owners and operators of Rehab Incorporated, Rehab Dynamics Incorporated, and Innovation Physical Therapy Incorporated. They surrendered their licenses and were each sentenced to 51 months in federal prison in order to pay restitution of up to $7.9 million. Edgar Pagosian, also known as Edgar Kaboyan of Glendale, was found guilty in federal court in February 2016 for money laundering and conspiring to commit money laundering. He took part in a health care fraud scheme to bill Medicare for equipment and tests that were not medically necessary and sometimes were not provided. He received 150 checks and laundered over $700,000 in health care fraud proceeds. Pagosian was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. Also suspended was Timothy Martin of Benicia, orthopedic physician and a surgeon. He had his medical certificate revoked in June 2015 by the Medical Board of California. Also, Alex Abbasi of Tarzana. 
He surrendered his physician and surgeon certificate in August 2015, also to the medical board. Nicole Halva of Palo Alto surrendered her medical license in August 2016 to the California Medical Board, and also suspended was Maher Arbadir of Modesto, who surrendered his medical license in May 2016 to the medical board. The new law requires the division's administrative director to suspend any medical provider, physician, or practitioner from participating in the workers' compensation system for various reasons. And now in medical news, the FDA just announced a series of measures designed to speed generic versions of complex drugs to market in an effort to address the rising costs of pharmaceuticals. The measures announced in a blog post by Commissioner Scott Gottlieb stray into an area that has not been previously the subject of FDA's purview, that is, drug prices. The agency has typically made its decisions based on safety and efficacy without regard to cost. But Gottlieb said the measures are designed to increase competition in the market by enabling generic competition to complex drugs. Earlier this year, the commissioner announced the Drug Competition Act plan to advance new policies aimed at bringing more competition to the drug market. The goal was to improve access consumers have to the medicines that they need and access to medicine as a matter of public health. The plan has a number of different domains. Among them is a compilation of efforts to improve the efficiency of the generic drug approval process, and another is a group of policies aimed at closing loopholes that allow branded drug companies to game FDA rules in ways that forestall the generic competition that Congress intended. One important group of policies is aimed at making it easier to bring generic competition to a category of branded drugs known as complex drugs. Thus, the FDA announced a major new set of policies to advance these goals. Complex drugs comprise high-cost medicines like metered-dose inhalers used to treat asthma, as well as some costly injectable drugs. These medicines generally have at least one feature that makes them harder to genericize under traditional approaches. As a consequence, these drugs can face less competition. In some cases, costly branded drugs that are complex drugs have lost their exclusivity but are subject to no generic competition. The new policies just announced are aimed at ensuring that the FDA provides as much scientific and regulatory clarity as possible with respect to complex generic drugs. The new guidance provides information on requesting and conducting product development meetings, pre-submission meetings, and mid-review cycle meetings with the FDA. These meetings will allow for enhanced communication between generic drug applicants and the FDA early in the generic drug development process, allowing for more efficient generic drug development, review, and approval pathways. The FDA commissioner says it will soon release other important policies aimed at spurring competition to complex drugs. A daily pill which halts the disabling bone loss caused by osteoarthritis is being hailed as a new dawn in the treatment of the disease. 
The new drug has excited scientists after trials showed that after just six months, it reduced bone damage around knee joints and also maintained cartilage thickness. It is the first time a drug has been shown to tackle underlying bone structure changes in diseased joints. Current treatments have aimed only at helping patients manage pain symptoms. The pan-European study was carried out over six months with 244 patients with osteoarthritis in the knee. But researchers say we now need larger studies to replicate these findings so that positive replicated results may open up a new class of drugs. This treatment, known as M1V-711, is based on a molecule involved in the turnover of bone and cartilage in the joints. It works by interfering with the process that leads to joint breakdown. It was tested against patients given a placebo, and after six months, those receiving the treatment showed a 65% reduction in bone loss. The drug also halted cartilage loss, with those on low doses experiencing a 70% reduction in cartilage thickness and those on higher doses showing a slight increase in cartilage thickness. Experts hope over a longer period the results may be greater and could have an impact on significantly reducing pain from the condition. The results of the trial are to be revealed next month at a medical conference in San Diego. The news comes as experts call for an end to the widespread long-term use of painkillers and anti-inflammatories following research showing they may be doing more harm than good. Recent studies have linked long-term use of anti-inflammatory drugs to an increased risk of stomach ulcers and kidney failure. Cigna has taken a multifaceted approach with the goal of reducing its opioid use among its customers by 25% by 2019. The company's covered drug lists are regularly evaluated as one aspect of its new approach. As a result of a recent review, the brand OxyContin will no longer be covered as a preferred option on Cigna's group commercial drug list, effective next January. Cigna is in the process of notifying customers with current OxyContin prescriptions and their doctors of the upcoming change so that they have time to discuss treatment options and covered oxycodone clinical alternatives. As with other medications that are not on covered drug lists, Cigna will consider approving coverage for OxyContin if a customer's doctor feels that treatment using OxyContin is medically necessary. As an alternative, Cigna has signed a contract with Collegium Pharmaceutical for the drug known as Zamtza, X-T-A-M-P-Z-A, an oxycodone equivalent with abuse deterrent properties. The abuse deterrent platform forces the product to maintain its extended release profile even when cut, crushed, chewed, or manipulated. Collegium is financially accountable if the average daily dosage strengths of the new drug prescribed for Cigna's customers exceeds a specific threshold. If the threshold is exceeded, Collegium will reduce the cost of the medication for many of Cigna's benefit plans. 
this new approach of linking financial terms to dosage matrix may encourage more education to prevent overprescribing. While drug companies don't control prescriptions, they can help influence patient and doctor conversations by education, educating people about their medications. The outcomes of the new value-based contract may help evolve opioid management strategies for the industry as a whole. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.